tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Thanks, Sarah. Welcome along to the second hour of uh, Tip Today. And just to remind you again that uh, all this week we've teamed up with Bow Travel. They're holding their first ever holiday show at the Anna Hotel in Thurles on Sunday the 30th of September. And by way of celebration of that, they've given us a 100 euro bow travel voucher to give away every day. It's based on your interaction with us by text. Joining in the conversations, you might want to come up with something brand new. You might want to get something off your chest. This is the ideal platform for that. So 083 311 But give me a full name and an address so that we can enter you properly into that competition. Legal discussion on tip today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors joins me in studio today, looking extremely dapper today. Always dapper, but extremely so today. I bought a new suit, so I have to wear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm delighted to hear it. I, I love the I fact buy you... them every every couple of years. You know what I mean? It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the fact you dress up for the slot. I yeah. Yeah. No, you, I'm. I'm sure your 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 listeners are really appreciative of my new suit. <laughs> well, you know, years ago on the BBC, they, it was part of their contract. They had to wear evening wear. Really? When they, when they were broadcasting on radio. So okay. there you go. Right. So. Uh, we might introduce it on the programme, you never know. <laughs> so, employer li- liability, you, you kicked off with this last week. But yeah, we were talking continue. about this last week. Actually, I was going to do something else, and I started reading it, and then I got lost in it. As in, I, I hadn't finished it completely enough to actually talk about it, but I will do it next week, because what I often do, which um, this... From a practical point of view, this radio show is very helpful to me sometimes because if I've got a case and I need to do a bit of research on it, there's nothing better than actually trying to talk about it on radio so that you can actually see if you understand it or right. not. And yeah. The difficulty with law is that no matter how often you read it and no how often you think you understand it, every time you come back to it, you kind of have to revisit the, the fundamental principles of it. And I was looking at something called promissory stroke proprietary estoppel and that's quite a, a mouthful wow. yeah but pr- promissory estoppel estoppel is stopping somebody doing something and promissory estoppel is where you make a promise and you stop somebody not honoring their promise and it comes into the area of law called equity and equity equity in law uh, kind of grew up if that's the right word grew up, that's probably not the right word, came in a time when the law was becoming very constrained, very tight. And in the early times of what we call the common law, and the common law, you've got statute law, constitution law, European law, and you've got common law. So common law is kind of case law built over generations. And we are what we call a common law jurisdiction. Like, for example, in Europe, Europe is not a common law jurisdiction. Napoleon changed all that by making regulations. So in in Europe, it's by and large a a kind of a a rule-based system, whereas ours is kind of case-based. But anyway, that's a a long... And is that from the old British tradition, is it? Exactly. It's from the old British... It's the old uh, Commonwealth Mm. tradition. Mm. So it comes from the British... So, for example, if you go to... uh, Australia, you're going to have a common law jurisdiction. Canada, I presume, as well? Canada as well, yeah. Yeah. So any commonwealth country, you're going to have common law. Um, I'm kind of losing myself here, but anyway. uh, But the whole 
essence of what we call, what I was trying to read, Promissory Estoppel, is grounded on what we call equity. And equity came in to our system in order to water down the kind of strictness of common law because the common law uh, was was strict and it had rules. So it basically said, if you didn't fall within these rules, uh, they had a principle called starry diseases, which is, I'm, I'm really throwing a lot at here, but they had a principle really whereby <clears throat> you had to follow precedent. So if they made a rule, you, be, you couldn't bend it. It was just an absolute rule. So you had a lot of people who were falling outside the rules because they just didn't comply with the rules that are made in common law. So they introduced equity. And equity is a little bit like, oh, come on now, let's be fair here. This isn't right. So that equity is that type of concept. So it brought kind of fairness to bear on the strict rules. And <clears throat> promissory estoppel grew up in that era, if you like, and it's one of the creatures of equity. It's, it's <clears throat> and equity is, is a great one, really, when you're stu- if you want to study law and have a bit of fun reading it, because equity in its own way, instead of having rules, has little sayings. So, for example, uh, the one that always makes me smile is, you must come to equity with clean hands. So, the principle is, like, if you're acting the whatever blackguard, you know, you can come giving out about somebody else acting right. it because after all, you're not coming with clean hands. So one of the principles that is always, and it, you know, equity is full of those kind of maxims, you know, you can't not coming with clean hands and that. But promissory estoppel, and, and I will finish reading it. Promissory estoppel is... Uh, there's promissory and proprietary estoppel, but anyway, proprietary estoppel is where you're dealing with promissory estoppel, but it deals with land. So, for example, the classic one I'll give you uh, is where, uh, let's say, the son is in Australia, comes home to Ireland. The father says to the son, uh, oh, listen, uh, the house is yours after I go. Uh and the son asks him, oh, will you give me a site to build a house? And, and the father says, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, you don't need to worry about that. Sure, the house is yours after I go. and uh, Your mother can live it and then you can have it. Um, and it then sits back while the son builds an extension for the parents and does a load of work with the house. Work, yeah. And then he makes the will. And what does he do in the will? He leaves it to somebody else. And so the area, that's the area of promissory estoppel. Now, that's as far as I got. Now, I'm going to go back to employer liability, which is what I was supposed right, to be But now I'm about. completely intrigued <laughs> because I want to ask you about the, the poor old son and what, what can Oh, he got anyway. it. He, felt, he, he got it. He, he, he made the case in equity that it was, there was a promise made. Right. There's, there's basically, I was trying to think of it last night. There's um, Ord, Ord. So there's uh, the principle is that I was trying to remember was ORD, reliance, and basically that there's, uh, you know, a kind of an undertaking or an understanding by one of the parties. So there's a kind of a mutual understanding, which was the case here with the father and the son. There's a reliance on it by the son. He relied on that understanding. And then there is the literally uh, him doing something which to his detriment, A-R-D, D is detriment. So he does something to his detriment, in his case, building and renovating the house and and, and doing it like that. But the the case law is, uh, there's quite a lot of that in case law. The reason I got bogged down in it is that 
there used to be, I'm trying to remember the phrase now because I didn't take any note of it, but there used to be, like all of these things, like law, law is riddled with this kind of stuff. You start to read it, you think you understand it, then you get into the middle of it, you get confused. Then you read a little bit more and you come back out and then hopefully by the time you're finished you might have some comprehension of what it's about. And that's the beauty of the study of law, if you like. That, you know, it's like it's like if if you go in so far, you'll, you'll, you have a certain understanding. If you go in too far, you might get confused. Mm. So if you're going to go in too far, you must finish. That's well, mm. I don't know why I'm ranting on about that. But anyway, but the thing, the, th- the interesting thing about this is that, or the interesting thing about estoppel or proprietary and or promissory estoppel as an equitable principle was that when they built it up, like initially when they were talking about the reason that equity turned up to deal with law was the same way as constitutional law came into the frame as well. And constitutional law is kind of an overlay, you know, it's kind of this kind of, we've this constitution with these general principles and we try and apply these general principles to our day to day law. Equity was trying to do the same with the common law. But then equity fell foul of the same problem because equity then started making cases Mm. and those cases started evolving principles. And out of those principles then... So what you had then was... And this is what exactly uh, left me for dead reading this last night. I said, oh, God, I'm never going to finish this because it just went on and on and on because it started by telling me, well there are a number of kind of fundamental principles in order to establish whether or not there is or is not proprietary estoppel. And that went on for about 50 pages. And then by the time you got to page 50, it said, oh, and by the way, in the 90s, they suddenly decided that there's an overriding principle that should apply in this area. And they started dropping the principles. So I said, okay, time to to take a break. But but I'm intrigued. Uh, Again, the sun thing. What I can't get my head around is the fact that a verbal um, agreement between the father and son uh, would take precedence over a written will. Because Mm. the father may genuinely have changed his mind. Yeah, he may have, but he made a promise. The son verbally understood. Yeah, he made a promise. Both of them understood the promise. The son then did something to to his detriment, and he acted based on, on the that promise. promise. Yeah, and the father stood back and let him do it. Right. So under those circumstances, equity, stroke fairness right. would argue that okay, if this, if he just like for example, the other interesting kind of way of looking at this is like let's say you had a favourite aunt I don't know whether you have or whether you haven't but if you had a, a favorite, number of them says he okay. making sure he doesn't get you're, into you're trouble. You're favoured by all your aunts okay <laughs> but we'll pick one of your favourite favourite aunts and let's say you thought she was going to leave you the house okay but she never said to you that she was going to leave you the house but she might have indicated to you but in your head you thought she was going to leave you the house and she didn't you couldn't sue her Mm, Because there was no agreement. Because there was no agreement. But what if she said to you, oh, look, Fran, the house is yours. And you said, okay, Mary. Now, I don't know if you have a Mary, but okay, Mary, what what I'll do here now is I'll do up the house. I'll create a nice little granny flat for you and I'll move in with me, my kids, etc., etc. I get a loan and etc. I'll do all this and I'll spend all my money because, uh, Fran, you're coming back from Australia, you have loads of money after making over there, whatever, playing music or whatever, and you've invested it all in it. Now, in that situation, that's promissory estoppel, because she's led you to believe that it's yours. She's 
sat back and allowed you to expend the money. Now, by the way, that's in the first 50 pages. There's another principle that comes into play, right. which is the one I'll give you next week when I'm finished reading it, which is the whole unconscionable element to it. So what they did was they said, OK, let's not get too rule bound here. Let's not have ord, you know, uh, I can't remember what the first one is. I'll have a check to see what it is. But reliance and detriment mm. and A is an understanding or whatever. Uh, but the if you leave those principles aside, what the courts in the 90s started to talk about in the UK was, oh, look, listen, if it's an, unconsci- if it's an unconscionable bargain or if it's an unconscionable uh, scenario to allow somebody to enforce their strict legal rights, we won't stand over that. That's not equitable. That's not right. So they introduced that principle into the fray. And that's where the next 50 pages... Interesting. I'll tell you what, before we get on to the employment uh, liability, let let me just take a break and we we, we can uh, go cleanly into that then. Uh, (laughs) It's uh, 10.22, right? Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors is still with me and obviously he has clients uh, all over the place who are just mad looking for him, <laughs> particularly <laughs> particularly Sorry. after the, uh, uh, the the wonderful piece earlier on. Anyway, Trudy's going to kill you over that, you know. Sorry, I know, I know. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. So, um, employer's liability, will you remind us of that case again? What I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to the end of it because mm. the, the, um, the, the, we were talking about McWinney versus Cork County Council and basically what I was trying to say to people was that there's a difference between, and we were back to, we're back to statutes here, there's a difference between employer liability at common law, which is what we were just talking about, and employer li- liability under statute. There's a difference. So when I'm taking a case on behalf of an employee or I'm defending a case on behalf of an employer, I could have to deal with either breach of what we call statutory duty, which is your codified system, or common law. Common law is negligence, common law negligence. And in common law negligence, a really, really quick, short differentiation between the two of them is that in in common law negligence there's kind of case law based principles of you know safe system work, safe tools uh, uh, competent uh, personnel etc etc and the common law system says you don't have to insure you're not an insurer so it's not as absolutist as a statutory okay. scheme, right? Yeah. The sa- statutory scheme on the o- and the other element of it is the whole issue of contributory negligence. We were talking about the fellow backing out of the van and you were saying that he shouldn't have fallen in the hole. But anyway, uh, the, the, the situation there was that in, in the case of breach of statutory duty, it's, it's more strict or stricter, whichever is the correct way of putting that. And breach of statutory duty is grounded on all of the legislation of health and safety at work, which is a huge amount of legislation. But when I was talking about it the last time, and in that particular case, uh, within that case, they cited a common law uh, case, for example, where somebody lost, whereas in this case, the employee won the case. In the one where they lost, the fellow was working on an iron ring and he hit his head off a metal stanchion or something on one of the decks. And the court said, OK, it was dangerous in ordinary circumstances, but in the circumstances that we're dealing with here, it's an eye rig. It isn't dangerous. It can't succeed. 
Whereas in the case, in our case, it was breach of statutory duty under health and safety legislation, right. which is much more specific, much more detailed, and much more directive. It, it's very directed at how you can breach and what you must do as an employer. And one of the things that you must do is carry out a risk assessment, and they hadn't done a risk assessment in this case, so therefore the court held that there was liability under the statutory regime. But what I what I was finishing with the last time, which I thought was quite interesting, it was an interesting judgment to read for anybody. And as I've often said to people, if you want to go to the courts.ie website and look up Mac Winnie under judgments, you'll you'll find it. But one of the one of the interesting things that the judge did was he actually had a fairly detailed breakdown on damages, how he was going to assess the the damages. So, you know, the old classic, how much do I get paid? So he went into great detail on it. And what he he did was he gave a little bit of the law on how you assess damages. And I thought he did a very, very good job. But he said that it's first of all, what is what are damages? Okay, and I'm I'm reading this in case mm. my voice drops, but reasonable compensation for pain and suffering that the person has endured and will likely endure in the future is his first kind of way of defining what are damages. Because people will often say to me, Well, how do, how did the courts assess compensation? You know, how how do we come up with this? And I said, Well, it breaks down into two kind of categories. It breaks down into what we call general damages and it breaks down into special damages. Special damages are your out-of-pocket, your loss of earnings, your crashed car, uh, your medical bills, etc., etc. They're special. So they're, if you like, ide- clearly identifiable with vouchers, etc., etc. But the other one, the general damages figure, is the, is the damages figure for pain and suffering. And he started by saying it's broken into two parts, up-to-date and future. So in other words, you go to court, the judge says, well, okay, I'm going to give you so much for the pain and suffering you've had up to now, and I'm going to give you so much for the pain and suffering you have into the future. And when a, when a judge does an assessment of damages, <clears throat> you'll often get that, you know, you'll get the breakdown. I'm giving it X to today's date and X going forward. I'm giving such and such for specials. So you clearly identify. So often when you're trying to present a case and you're you're ensuring that you're giving your evidence correctly, you have to be very well uh, versed. Sorry, very well versed is wrong. You have to be cognizant of the fact that you have to deal with future Mm, pain of course, Because yes. you might have an injury where, you know, it might be close to a joint or something and you might have arthritis into the future. If you ignore that, a judge isn't going to be able to award it, award damages for it. But anyway, in this particular case, he damaged his distal radius and ulnar stylide, which is just around the wrist. Mm. But anyway, the, when the judge looked at it then, he said, well... Okay, so I have to do up to date and into the future. So what's the next thing I have to do? He says, well, the next thing I have to do, and I'll I'll give it to you as he says. And he was a rigger, this guy, was he? He was an oil rigger. He he was was an oil rigger who used to do Nixers, not Nixers, because he, you know, Nixers sounds like it was on the side. It doesn't on the side. He was three weeks on, three weeks off. And on his three weeks off, he used to do this this work. And he did this work for Cork County Council. So the next thing that the judge talked about is damages. And he says can only be fair and just if they're proportionate not only to the injuries sustained by the person themselves, but also proportionate to when assessed against the level of damages commonly awarded to other plaintiffs who have sustained injuries which are of a significant or 
greater or lesser magnitude. magnitude. Right. So how significant the injury concerned is when viewed within the whole spectrum of a potential injury. Right. Now, so there's a precedent re- there somewhere, yeah, is that but it? I had yeah. re- no, but I had reason to have this conversation with the client the day after I read the case because, you see, we often look to damages as just our particular pain and suffering, and it's a subjective test, you know, how, you know, but what the, what the judge was saying was the second part of the equation is to make absolutely sure that you realise that damages come along a spectrum. Do you know what I mean? You start from very minor damages to very significant damages. And you might say, well, Jeannie Mac, you know, I only got, I don't know, pick a figure, I only got 25,000 in damages. Uh, I don't think that's enough. And the question is, well, how do you know whether it is or whether it isn't? And the answer is, you look to the spectrum. You look along mm. the spectrum and you see what they are. But he then went on and he, he cited a case, which was a Court of Appeal case in 2016. And they set out very detailed things. And again, as I said, instructive for somebody who wants to kind of get a, a, a look at this. Now, I'll jump from that to the last thing he looked at, which is the Book of Quantum. And the Book of Quantum is a book that was that's in the public arena that if you if you google book of quantum you'll get it and that's like a ready reckoner of damages depending mm. on and you look at it and it'll give you a range of damages it'll say this kind of an injury is between this figure and this figure this kind of an injury it's a, so he he finished with the book of quantum and said well i obviously have to look at that as well but before he did that then he said I've taken into account the guidance given by Irvine Jay, who's a Court of Appeal judge in Shannon versus O'Sullivan, and he says most judges, when it comes to assessing the severity of any given injury and the appropriate sum awarded for pain and suffering, will be guided by the answers to these questions. And he actually went down and set out the questions. And I'll just give you a couple Mm. of them. Was the incident which caused the injury traumatic? And if so, how much distress did it cause? Fairly general, vague kind Mm -hmm. of one. Did the plaintiff require hospitalisation? Much more specific. Did the person who got the injury have to be hospitalised or not? And if they did, for how long? Okay. How long did they have their symptoms? Now, I love this one. What did the plaintiff, plaintiff is the person who takes the Mm. case, what did the plaintiff suffer in terms of pain and discomfort or lack of dignity during that period? Now, I'm not sure what the benchmark for lack of dignity is, but I presume it's to do with the type of injury that you're mm. talking about. But they then go on. This is the court. This is a court now kind of trying to drill it down to very specific things. What type and number of surgical interventions or other treatments did they require during the period of hospitalisation? So you can imagine that you'd be listing off all these things. Sure. While recovering in their home, was the plaintiff capable of independent living, etc., etc.? So... The point that I'm making is it's an interesting one to have a look at if you want to see what kind of goes through or might go through the mind of a court stroke judge. In making the decision. In making the assessment. But the final one that the judge looked at was that the revised book of quantum in 2016, he looked at that and said, based on that, I'm putting it between this range and that range. So So go on then. Can you tell us what, what what did he get? What did he get? Yeah, you remind me of when I used to study law. I used to think that one of the most uh, distressing, not distressing, that'd be too strong, but one of the things that used to drive me nuts when I was studying law in college was 
all the all of the lecturers, they're all they were ever interested in were the principles of the case. But nobody said how much. But nobody ever said how much <laughs> did he win and what happened afterwards. And I'll always remember reading, and I'll finish on this. But I always remember reading the case that came out on the Irish Supreme Court. Do you remember it came out? It came out there about two years ago on the Irish Supreme Court. It's a book written by the Irish Supreme Court during the Halcyon days when they were ra- making a huge amount of... Oh, yes, yes, I did. Sure, I, got, I got it, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But that book gives you the kind of information that you want and I wanted when yeah, I was in college. Yeah. But anyway, to make a long story short, your man got 83,310 uh, uh, euro. Uh, he got a total for general damages of 70,000. Uh, 10,000. So he got 60 pain and suffering into the... F- he got 60 up to the date of the hearing, 10 going forward, and then he got the rest in special damages, 13,310 euro. Right. So so that you're happy now. He got 62,482 and he won. Very good indeed. <laughs> and just a really quick question, because yeah. I'm really intrigued by this. If 10 years down the line, he discovered that the injury that he got... Um, has had far more profound effect. In other words, that it might have caused, I don't know, whatever, some some dreadful illness or something. Can he, can that be revisited? Oh, God. <laughs> no, remember, but remember I... I, you're I li- no. Remember you're live on radio now. No, you can't sorry, say, oh, sorry. God. No, no. Well, you can't ask God, I suppose. Uh, no, the only reason I'm I'm saying, oh, God, on that is that the straight answer to that is that the easiest answer I can give you is that you're in trouble because... When you take a case, and and it's one of the problems with the case, when you take a case, the case is dealt with on the day. Right. And whatever happens, whatever's on the day is on the day. That's it. And you're done. Yeah, you're done. I have a feeling there's a small but. There's always a but. There's always a but. There's always a but, because when I studied the statute of limitations however many years ago, and I was making a submission subsequently then to the, uh, this sounds really like dropping names, when I was making a submission to the Supreme Court on a statute case, what went through my head at the time is, what if you knew absolutely nothing about a secondary injury? Not that the injury you had was worse, mm. but what mm. happens if, just for the sake of argument, that you had, let's say, you know, a fracture or something, yes. but in fact you had an internal injury that you knew nothing about, could you take a case for the internal injury after you had settled the case for the fractured wrist? And? The jury is out. <laughs> I can't give you. I'd love to. I'd love to. You leave I'd, everything on a cliffhanger. I'd, lo- I'd, I'd love, love to. Do, I'd love to take a case and find out, <laughs> but I can't say for sure. <laughs> All right, it's always a pleasure. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors. All right, let's take a break. We're back with the rest of Tip today in a moment.